So I'll talk for a little bit, and if something comes up, feel free to jump in. I wanted to continue a series of talks that I've been doing for some time on the core teachings that the Buddha offered, which are the in Theravada Buddhism, we're kind of they say we like to instead of worship deities, we worship lists. And so one of the lists that we really practice with is oftentimes referred to as the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. But really, in reality, the translating the first part of this Four Noble Truths as truths is somewhat misleading because really the Buddha was a radical pragmatist. A lot of times people call him a psychologist in the sense that what he was really interested in is not these truths about the world out here, but more of uh, practices of how to cultivate and develop a more easeful world in here. Right, So they're things to do, not necessarily things to believe in. Which I find for myself takes my mind still to this day quite some time to remember and to get back on that track of, you know, I'm not really trying to necessarily be a good Buddhist or to believe in Buddhism or to follow some type of, you know, orthodoxy that's been offered. It's not a prescriptive path necessarily in that sense, but more it's a descriptive path of describing, and maybe in a sense it's both, it always seems to be both, but really I feel like a lot of what the Buddha offered was describing a way of interacting with our inner world and our outer world and the relationship between the two in a way that causes and creates less stress and suffering in our lives. So the view that we really start to develop is the first path factor really is is this wise or a skillful view. And whether I think I care to admit it or not, we always have some type of view. I always have a perception of what's going on and how it is and what I believe and think about it. And so, you know, view is a really important thing to consider, to look into. How am I seeing my experience? How am I living in a way, uh, you know, how am I living from my view? One of the views is really we're trying to start to be more honest about the ways that we do experience suffering and stress in our lives. The Buddha kind of started with the, you know, what's the problem to begin with? Why would one even really want to do any of this? Why would we come all the way out here to meditate for 30 minutes? I think in that sense he was kind of brilliant. Uh, He says this dharma that he has reached, which means this kind of path of practice that he awoke to, he said it's subtle, it's difficult, it's hard to see. And he says that if, if, you know, he was to teach it, he kind of reflects during his awakening and he says, you know, if I was to actually teach this, no one would want to do this shit. (laughs) Right? And so I think he started to think, well, what do I, how do I really connect? Because it's been so, you know, it has been the transformative thing for him himself. So he was trying to think of like, oh, how do I connect with people about a path of practice or skillful means and so he says well first of all what's the thing that we're why are we trying to practice to begin with and that's because we all experience some degree of stress and suffering in our lives all human beings 
And this is related to just the, the inevitable nature of our existence, that we are born into a world of uncertainty. We, even as much as the mind loves to try to predict what's going to happen next, we don't actually know, right? If there's a next and what's going to happen in it. But the mind does that, and so it tries to kind of run around and figure it out and create conditions to make things more secure and more you know, solid, but we live in a world that's not solid. And so it's one of the things that the Buddha really emphasizes impermanence or this kind of nature of change that we are born, we grow old, we get sick, we pass, you know, that we get what we don't want, that we don't get what we do want, that this kind of, uh, the world really offers that. And even neurobiological, you know, the neurobiological uh, part of even they found in slugs that slugs move towards environments that they that are opportune, that are comfortable, and away from environments that aren't. Right, and this is kind of, uh, you know, this is a part of our neurobiology. Is we live in a pleasure pain manager, right? We live in a a system that's job is to make things comfortable, but we live in an existence in a world that isn't so comfortable all the time. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And the problem is not comfort, but the problem is this kind of denying of the stress of it all, that we kind of keep pushing it away and just moving to the next thing and pushing it away and moving to the next thing and compartmentalizing and avoiding and you know, covering up our stress instead of bringing it out front. And so the first kind of task is to do that, is to bring it out front. And so even to reflect, you don't have to share it, but really I think that it's a good thing to ask these questions. We're trying to develop insight here. That's the path of awakening is to develop insight. And so even like what is the stress or what is the suffering, what is the discomfort or disease that's been present for you most recently? Even this past week, even today maybe, my dog keeps getting into our trash can back home, right? It's a little stress, but it's stress. And then there's bigger stress, like there's, you know, uh, death, loss, loss of job, loss of people, illness. You know, our major fears and anxieties. It's all this word the Buddha used, dukkha, stressful. And so to not get in this kind of like, sometimes we compete about our suffering, right? Or we kind of like have different degrees and we feel almost unworthy to bring our suffering forward because it's like, oh, I'm suffering about my dog knocking over my trash can and this person's sister just died, right? Or and this person just lost their job or, you know, and so what we do is we kind of, you know, start to create a self around our suffering. We create this kind of like, you know, structure for it. And really, you know, dukkha is just dukkha. It's just difficulty. And to bring that forward and to be willing and curious and honest, you know, to, to be honest about the ways that we experience that in its many forms, no matter how little and how big. And so as we start to really investigate that and bring it forward, we do that with wise friends. One of the main things that develops wisdom on the path of practice the Buddha offered constantly, one of the things we take refuge in here is, is community. So this is why we aren't sitting at home alone right now, right? It's why we come 
all the way out here together is because there's something, and you can feel it too. I mean, maybe you, some of you all have had this experience of like, you know, sitting and we're going to sit for 30 minutes and you watch the mind really not want to do it anymore. And kind of, it's like, all right, I'm done. Ring the bell. <laughs> and, but just the fact that the kind of positive peer pressure that other people are doing it, you know, you have this body next to you and they're sitting and they're breathing and, you know, probably experiencing the same suffering that we are. Or maybe we think they're, they're actually enlightened and we're not. Right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, so we are encouraged to really to do, the, to do this work of looking at what Carl Jung calls the shadow side or the parts of ourselves, the parts of our lived experience that we keep, you know, out of the light of our awareness. We're encouraged to bring them into the light of our awareness with other people wise people in particular, people that we feel like, you know, are interested in this type of awakening. And so what we do by looking at our suffering and our stress in our lives is we see how the mind, the behavior and the activity of the mind and the behavior and the activity that we, we uh, have habits of uh, behavior and activity through speech and through action, we start to look at these areas of our lives and start to look at, you know, how is this stress and suffering created? And that there are certain things in our existence, there are certain things in how we live in the world that are out of our control completely, right? But how we relate to our lived experience is what we have agency over, right? And so it's just a practicing of relating to what we're experiencing. And so instead of pushing and pulling, they call this tanha upadana, craving and clinging our way through, just kind of really trying to get it just right, just right. You know, we start to, and it's not, it's not this, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. That sounds like a good idea. I'll just stop doing that. This is stuff, the dharma means the way things are. So the dharma should feel like it. you, you agree with that. Hopefully, right, is that, you know, most of this, it's like, yeah, I suffer, I experience stress, and I want things to be comfortable a lot of the time, and they're not comfortable, right? We get that. It's just the thing is that when we start to practice, it's this gradual process of awakening. It's this kind of, you know, we start to use the practice of mindfulness to look, to frame it up. How is it? That's why this is, this part of the practice is so important. It's because we use our awareness to look into what's happening and start to ask that question of where am I craving clinging? Where am I holding on? Where am I resisting? Where am I competing, comparing, proving, predicting? You know, where's the, the greed, the hatred, and the delusion in the mind? These are the three fires that the Buddha talked about. So we start to let the fire kind of go out a little bit. So, you know, oh, okay, I'm not going to put another log on the fire. <laughs> I'm going to sit back and let it kind of die down. And it does. And then, you know, we have moments where we're not so aware and we, you know, put the log back on because we want to feel warm, right? And so we put it on, but then we get burned. And then it's like, no, maybe it died down. And then, you know, so we kind of... That If that's your experience, this repetitive craving and clinging, and you notice that that continues to happen despite practicing for some time, that's completely been my experience. That's completely what I've heard from other people is a normal part of life, is craving is repetitive. Resistance is repetitive. We don't like pain. 
the body-mind does not like pain. So li learning to live with pain with more tolerance, openness, and compassion is a pro long road. But the third, the third thing that we're you know, bringing into view is this reality that we can experience the cooling down of our reactivity. So that's the, the task, is to actually know when we, I did used to do the thing and feed the fire, and I did used to uh, you know, have this habit grooved into my thought or my speech or my action when we don't do it anymore. And it's like, oh, wow, I used to do that, and I, that, I don't do that as much anymore. And the Buddha actually wants to call attention to our progress. Progress is a tricky word, but, you know, to our awakening. So it's not actually a path of suffering. This is the bad rep I think Buddhism gets. It's like life is suffering. Like there's some truth claim at the beginning. But no, life is difficult. It is challenging. And uh, we can relate to life in a way that we actually experience freedom from suffering. Life's still painful, but we don't have to suffer as much, and that that's possible. And Buddhism doesn't have the market on awakening. That's another interesting thing about this path of practice, is we, we don't really actually claim, uh, I don't know, all these theological terms, but we don't uh, claim supreme divinity to the awakening experience. That ethical living, which is what I really want to talk about tonight, uh, a way of living in the world that's in, that includes non-harming through action, through speech, but also through the mind, which we'll get to. But, you know, that, that is something that we know, that we're familiar with. But by really dedicating to a community by dedicating to a meditation practice, by sitting retreat and, you know, coming in, you know, being a part of Buddhist communities, what happens is that we kind of stay uh, in that ethical frame with more consistency, more frequency, and we have mirroring, we have people to reflect back on our awakening, you know, and, and awakening carries momentum. So this is the other view now that we're talking about is this view of karma. And karma, I'm not going to get into it because I talked about it a few weeks ago, but karma is, uh, was the science of the Buddha's day. So it wasn't uh, anything that he theorized or hypothesized was something that existed. It was just really how it was, that you're born into the world and that you continue to be born into the world until you obtain some type of something. And so there are all these spiritual seekers and all these mendicants of the day and what the, what the Buddha did that was really interesting, what was unique to his teaching, is he said, I'm not interested in what happens when we die. I'm not interested in whether we're reborn as a beetle or as an arahant or, you know, whatever we're, happens to us when we die. I'm interested in how we live in this world. And in particular, by this world, he means this inner world. So he really focused on what we do has conse have consequences. Whatever we do, whatever actions, that's what karma actually means is action. So whatever action we do through thought, speech, or mind, it has momentum. It influences more likely what we may do again. 
And his view of karma was very complex. It wasn't you do X, you get Y, right? It's that, you know, the past experiences and the past habits of thought, speech, and action inform how I'm more likely to respond in the present. But my volition, my ability to use my mind, my speech, and my action in the here and now and have agency over that with mindfulness has influence over how I also engage in the present and then how I engage in the future, right? So, you know, there's this uh, understanding and there's this line in one of the discourses that says, whatever we think and ponder upon becomes the inclination of the mind so that we have habits that we create that are oftentimes unconscious and reflexive. They just, it's like muscle memory. You know, you say something to me ever, you ever have, or you have something that someone said, if they say it to you, it just triggers you and you lose your shit. Mine is as if I'm really upset or I'm, you know, being very emotional and trying to communicate my feelings and someone set, tells me to calm down, I'll lose my shit, right? And so it's like, you know, uh, that's reflexive. It's like, you know, something in my past or something over time. It doesn't matter actually where it started. It just matters that I know that that's a thing, right? And so when that arises, whatever I choose to, however I choose to respond with that or meet that experience, you know, I, I get better at my responses to things. So in Buddhism, they'd say that happiness, our ease, our well-being, awakening is a behavior. It's a collection of good habits, and that's the idea of karma. And so at the base of this whole practice is really the idea, the ethical implication, I should say, more than an idea. It's an implied ethical stance of non-harming, goodwill, non-harming. So with knowing that, you know, whatever ways I speak, act, and think in the world, that those have consequence, what we want to really start to do is look at how do we self-generate stress and suffering? And how does that spill out onto and into our interactions? There are a couple ways to start to move from this, this place. Is, uh, one of the best ways, I think, personally, is my opinion, is to look at the behaviorist approach. And this is how the Buddha outlined the Eightfold Path. Is the foundation of the Eightfold Path is uh, speech, action, and livelihood, which is called sila, or the ethical base. And so basically the behaviorist approach is if we change what we do, if we look at our behavior first, that will in turn change how we think and feel, right? <clears throat> but we burn the wick at both ends because we also practice mindfulness and we also work internally in this behavior of thinking. So the Buddha takes it a step further and says that thinking how we think is also a behavior, right? But one of the first things we can do that's really simple is to start to organize our lives around non-harming through our action. And one of the things that we do in this, in this practice as lay practitioners, meaning non-monks, is we undertake training precepts. 
And so as I say that, even just kind of reflect, what's your experience with, uh, you know, having some type of guidelines for how we behave? And for me, I don't really like that that much. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I wanted to come here and not uh, other places is because I didn't so much like being told, right, in this really firm way what right and wrong is. So there are a couple ways to look at this differently. One is we're not looking at right and wrong. We're looking at what's skillful and what's unskillful. And what's skillful and unskillful changes depending upon our conditions. In this day and age, we have something that we as a culture live under the, you know, the like ethical impression of something called legalist ethics, which is basically right and wrong, good and bad. And you, you see this, and I see this because I work with people all the time in the mental health field. I work with people all the time here. And you see how things like shame and feeling good or bad about oneself because I said something wrong or right or wrong, this kind of like judging oneself by the playbook or the rule book, it really finds its way into a lot of what we do. One of my intentions, actually, for the new year was to uh, stop living in right and wrong, which is almost an impossible goal. <laughs> it's a great intention. It's a great thing to look at. Instead, to try to live from what is healthy and what's unhealthy, what's skillful and what's unskillful. And to really, and to do that, that means that we actually have to really reflect on that for ourselves. And by that, I mean every day to look at our behavior. You know, look at the things, not from right and wrong, but from, you know, what are the ways that I can improve? What are the things that, you know, I really want to organize my life around? Am I doing that? And do I have a sense of that? Sometimes if I don't write them down or if I don't actually speak them out loud, they also hang out in the shadow. You know, these potential awakenings hang out back there too. So you got to bring that forward and, to start to look at, you know, how can I live with more health? Looking at our behavior. One of the things that we want to uh, also look at is, I feel like one of the best ways to feel better is to practice the opposite of non-harming, which is generosity. So harm can be done, greed, hatred, right? This kind of sense of acquiring or taking yours or this poverty mentality that I'm trying to, you know, get or acquire something or this opposite, this kind of, you know, this hatred or resentful quality. And so generosity is a, is a giving, it's an expression or a sign of offering, you know, it's a selfless endeavor. It's really, actually, I think if there was one thing other than patience, because I always see, say patience is the one thing that I want to teach more than anything else, uh, is generosity. I think that if there is something that inspires awakening in my life, if there's been one thing, really, it's been the ways that I've been able to serve. You know, the ways that I've been able to show up in its many forms to other people, to lend an ear when I don't want to, 
right, to sit down and to say, oh, you know, I really wanted to eat this cake, but you can have a bite, right? I really wanted to, uh, you know, have the day off, but this person's calling me and they're having a hard time. And, you know, within, we're we're getting into the area of boundaries and limits and self-care and, you know, we could talk about that forever. But really, you know, generosity is something... Thing to be a part of daily practice. You know, I think it's something to really to consider. What are the expressions of that? And again, intention is the most powerful part of the Buddhist path because I can give and not my mind doesn't know, my mind and my heart doesn't know that that's what I'm doing while I'm doing it. And so I wouldn't even call that generosity. I would call that giving, which is great. I'm not saying giving's bad or, right? But I'd say that kind of the depth of giving can go a lot, you know, it can resonate a lot deeper with just noticing that there's an ethical implication to offering one's time, to offering one's, you know, resources, offering all, in all of the ways we can offer. And that if we tune into that and we know that that's what we're doing, there's an expression of that generosity that the heart and the mind remembers. We all know, it's so funny, and this baffles me, we know we can learn shit. We know that I could sit up here and speak Spanish and you could come twice a week and we could do this for years and you'd be able to speak Spanish. And But for our emotional and mental life, we, for some reason, leave this off the table. You can actually learn an expression of generosity. Your mind can recognize it and know what that state feels like. You can learn an expression of goodwill, and your mind and body knows what that state feels like. You know, empathy, is, it can be learned. It can be felt and experienced. So by looking at you know, these kind of two forms, so... There's the behavior, the how I actually organize my actions, and then there's the inner work, the inner behavior. <laughs> and the taking of the precepts. I'll talk about these in a couple weeks in more depth. But the, the taking of the precepts is just a training of, you know, the first precept is, I vow to undertake the training to refrain from intentionally causing harm to any living beings. So again, this is at its base. And to know that as long as you're alive, you are going to cause harm to living beings. So it's almost even more beautiful than being perfect. That's what's so great about, you know, there's nothing that gets in the way of the practice. These ideas that perfection is not what we're shooting for. It's aspiration. You know, is that the right word? Okay. What's the thing where you choke on your vomit? Is that also aspiration? Asphyxiation. Oh, yeah. Aspirate. Okay. Aspirate's like when you pull up a syringe. Cool. So it either means a wish for greater well being or choking on your vomit. I don't remember what I was talking about. Oh, yeah, to refrain from intentionally causing harm to any living means knowing that I will cause harm 
in my actions, but to really start to, you know, that's why it's a training as I take that. And I take these every morning after I sit, you know, I take this as a, as a way to bring our practice mindfulness without, you know, without bringing that into our daily activities, without an expression of that through speech and action is useless. Yeah. Now, I do believe that sitting and practicing naturally influences how we speak and act in the world, but I think that we have to do both. I've met many uh, awakened-ish individual that are complete assholes, you know, that are completely unethical. And we see this in Buddhist communities. We see this in all religious communities, right? People that are very woke in certain areas of their life, but very unwoke in their ethical behavior. So undertaking this as a training to look into this. Okay, how, how am I going to do this today? We're, we never graduate from that. You know? The second precept, may I, or I vow to undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not freely offered to me. That's a huge, you know, that's a very wide net to cast. It's not just stealing, but what's not freely offered. In the monastic tradition, you don't eat food that's not placed in your bowl. You know, I've sat with a monk that hasn't gotten to choose what he's wanted to eat in 40 years. So whatever someone offers, and if no one offers food that day, they don't eat. You know, because the, you know, really being careful about what we take. What we take, that's something to be really interested in. And I vow to undertake the training precept to be, I change this one a little bit, wise and careful in my communication, refraining from being dishonest or manipulative in my speech. So that's how I frame that. Because I'm dishonest and manipulative in speech, it's, you know, now that I feel like, yeah, for the most part, I don't really lie. I do lie, don't get me wrong, but I don't big lie, right? <laughs> so that's why I want to look a little bit deeper, okay? The, all of the ways that, you know, maybe dishonest or manipulative. And I think some forms of manipulation can be useful. Effective communication and knowing what people's needs are and speaking to them. I mean, that's what enabled us to get half off of our rent, you know, here when it flooded and you know, to negotiate the rate for our new, you know, to use some of those skills, but to really look at our intention behind how we communicate. There's, I've been harmed through communication probably more than anything else in my life. So it's really important to look at, yeah, how do I speak? How do I email? How do I text? And, and how do I listen, actually, to take a step back? That's a lost art form if there is one, <laughs> right? And then I vow to undertake the training precept to be wise and careful with my sexual energy. Now, the Buddha, again, didn't have any type of moralistic ideals about sexuality, whether it was good or bad or right or wrong. He said, basically, it's just such a powerful force, such a powerful drive for all humans. And the thing that sucks so much is we don't talk about it ever in public areas and with our kids. And 
we're, I think we're starting to get a little bit better. You know, we sexualize bodies from the time we're young. We learn about bodies from porn and even in, even through reality reality TV and you know all of these areas. They the culture teaches us. And again, I don't think any one of those things is good or bad. But I but it, if we don't talk about sex, then that's how we learn. We learn from this very sexualized culture, but we don't have any context for what sex is, you know, how to use that energy. You know, I guarantee everyone in this room has had an experience some suffering around sexuality. Yeah, even if it's just intimacy and relationship. As a matter of fact, that's why a lot of people come here. Relationship, depression, anxiety probably say those three are all at the top. <laughs> Addiction would be in there too. And then the last is, uh, I vow to undertake the training precept to refrain from intoxicating drink and drug that can lead to heedlessness, which is a touchy subject. I don't know really why. I want to be really clear. I think that the Buddha's understanding was if you really want to experience... <laughs> a releasing of suffering, of craving and clinging, you should give up sex and you should give up drugs and alcohol. Right? You should give up having a family. You should become a monk. Right? If you really want to experience, right, just because those drives are so strong, right? Because uh, there's kind of a joke that, which I'll probably repeat in a couple weeks because I always love to say it, is that... Uh, you know, a monk was, the story is a monk was held at gunpoint and they told him, you have to break one of your precepts. And he was like, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to harm another being. You know, I'm a monk. That's like our ethical base. I'm not going to take from anyone. I haven't taken anything that hasn't been offered in 40 years. I'm you know, not going to do this. And he's like, well, I'll just drink a little alcohol. And then he broke all the other precepts. Right? <laughs> And so the idea is not that alcohol or drug use is good or bad, you know. I think uh, that it's obvious that there are health benefits to some people in using certain substances, and I don't think that recreational drug use for people is necessarily bad. You know, I just think that it's an area that we really want to be careful and cautious about, and it's an area that we really want to look. And I love that Thich Nhat Hanh takes this further, and he start, looks at, like, how do we uh, look at what we consume in general, all of our consumption. Our consumption of, you know, social media, our consumption of Netflix, our consumption of, you know, whatever we consume. That whatever we sit in front of and open the heart to and the mind to, you know, it, it's stimulated, it's activated by that. There's some lady, uh, I believe I heard it from this lady named Nancy Napier, and she's a somatic experiencing uh, a psychotherapist that's been doing it for quite some time. And she said that they kind of tracked our media, just media in general, over you know the past few decades, and that it's at like a hysterical level of stimulation. That it's just like basically just blowing people out into hysteria over and over and over and over again. 
And especially people that have, you know, and she works with people that have traumas. It keeps you in, like, an activated state. You know, and so just to be really careful about how we, what and what we consume. And to make adjustments. And so starting with the behaviorist approach, I think, is a really good, and not starting, always staying, in a way, in the behavior approach, but looking at, that's one of the quickest ways to feel better, for me is to really look at like to adjust make some adjustments a little bit and that and to have some humility and to give ourselves a break because some of the patterns some of the habits that we have they're going to be really fucking hard to break you know I've been trying to quit nicotine I have quit again but I've been trying to quit nicotine since I was 13 years old you know and I'll quit for a couple years and then I'll you know, smoke, or I'll use this, or, you know, whatever, and it's just like, you know, there's no use in beating ourselves up on top of, you know, feeling all anxious and bummed out when I'm smoking a cigarette, or dipping, or whatever I'm doing, you know, (laughs) and the last thing I'll say is just to speak you know, once more to the mental training is the ethical, ethical mindfulness is what my teacher has kind of called this. And that mindfulness, awareness of how things are in the present without judgment, that this awareness that we're developing, this present time awareness is done, uh, you know, it's done with an ethical implication. So mindfulness is done in conjunction with what we call the Brahma-viharas or the heart qualities or the quality of goodwill, quality of compassion, a quality of appreciative joy, a quality of equanimity, which is a balanced understanding of the wisdom factor of the heart. And so mindfulness is done with these qualities and includes these qualities. Whatever we think and ponder upon becomes the inclination of the mind. And the Buddha's encouragement was just to be really careful. Yanisomanasakara, careful attention. He said to be really careful with what we pay attention to and to be full of care in what we're tending to. So to be careful to guard the mind a little bit. And also, whatever comes into the mind, nothing gets, you know, nothing's excluded. That just to be full of care in how we hold our thoughts and how we hold our emotions. You know, because those aren't, I don't believe the awakened being is rid of thought and emotion. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the relationship to those parts of ourselves that we're trying to develop. 